This week in the Dan K, I try and find the perfect match in a Mitch Haniger trade, and it's not very easy. I'll give you two things that Monday's huge Seahawks showdown with the undefeated 49ers will tell us about this Seahawks team and about its head coach. And I've got listener questions to answer. So let's get to it. Dan Cave, next. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Fies. Welcome to the Dan Cave, everybody. Either welcome back if you've listened before or welcome for the first time. And uh, we may have quite a few first-time listeners to this episode. Uh, got a nice little bump over the last week and a half or so in listenership, and I give Jason Churchill all the credit. Got to uh, do a cool little guest spot on his outstanding uh, Mariners podcast, Baseball Things, a couple of weeks ago. Jason Churchill, who founded ProspectInsider.com uh, back in the early 2000s, has been uh, writing about the Mariners farm system for years, uh, was an ESPN insider. Uh, worked for CBS Sports, now works for Hero Sports, and does this uh, phenomenal podcast. If you're a Mariner fan, and I assume most of you are if you're listening to this, and you don't listen to a po- his podcast, you should. And it's typically a subscriber-driven, uh, and you should all subscribe. It's worth the money. But he made our episode free to all. So if you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, and look for Baseball Things with Jason Churchill, um, and look for the episode entitled Mariners Rebuild. We talk about Mitch Haniger and Yusei Kikuchi and really take a 360-degree uh, look at the rebuild now that we're a year into it. And uh, we really dive deep. Usually his episodes are about 45 to 50 minutes long. We went over an hour and a half and probably could have um, probably could have kept talking. Uh, it's really worth a listen if you're a, a Mariner fan and you're into the rebuild, or if you're not, and maybe we'll help sway you, educate you, uh, move the line for you just a little bit, but, um, it's a worthwhile listen, uh, picked up some really cool new followers in the process. Uh, shout out to Luke Arkins and Scott Hembury and Jerry Savage Depoto and the guys at Soto Mojo for the new follows. Um, thanks to Jason for having me on. It was a blast. I look forward to doing it again and having him on as a guest here, which, uh, as I told him, uh, I think we'll shoot for January. Um, because I think some transactions will happen between now and then, and we'll start to see the roster shape up, um, a little bit. Also special shout out to Thailand. Uh, looked at my numbers today and, uh, big jump up. Uh, from people in Thailand listening. It's a full 2% now of uh, the Dan Cave listenership. So, hey, to all you over there in Thailand. And uh, and to my friends from the Great White North, 1%, uh, a full percentage point now coming from Canada, north of the border, which is cool because uh, technically my heritage, my last name, Viennes, is a French-Canadian name. So shout out to the Great White North. Um if you haven't already, please hit subscribe. That way you won't miss any new episodes of the podcast. And if you're not following me on Twitter, please do at Seahawks forever. Um, I want to start with the Mariners in part because uh, we're officially into the offseason and it it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, also in part because um, of the appearance on baseball things and some of the new uh, ears that I may have on this episode. But also because we basically are at the one-year marker now. 
As I record this, it is November 8th, 2019. It was exactly one year ago that we were given the first indication that Jerry DePoto was set setting forth on a rebuild. Um, we didn't know the extent of it, but we knew that we may be on the verge of the biggest teardown and rebuild, what we like to call a proper rebuild, um, maybe that we've ever seen in Mariner history. Mike Zanina was traded to the Tampa Rays uh, on November 7th last year, along with Guillermo Heredia in return for Malik Smith and uh, Jake Fraley. That was a year ago. And then things started happening pretty quickly after that. It's easy to forget, but James Paxson was traded to the Yankees on November 17th. Edwin Diaz, that trade was finalized on December 3rd. The news broke... I think December 3rd was a Monday, and news broke um, about a week before that. There was about a four- or five-day period where uh, there was some pretty strong reporting that it was going to happen, and the names were finalized, but the trade didn't go through, and it wasn't announced until December 3rd. And on that same day, Gene Segura was then traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. So that's really, once Paxson was traded, we knew we were in for a full rebuild. And then the Diaz thing, um, and I don't want to get too deep into this, it, because Jason and I talk about it extensively, and you really should go listen to that episode. But um, it's it's conceivable they could have stopped after the James Paxson trade last year and still tried to do a partial rebuild if they didn't feel like they were going to get um, uh, legitimate or acceptable value from Edwin Diaz trading him on his own. But the facts that the fact that the Mets were willing to talk about Robinson Cano uh, was kind of a huge lucky break in this whole process for Depoto. Um, I think knowing what we know now, I think Diaz still would have been traded, but would it have been as impactful as a trade, um, that included Cano and shedding most of his contract? Uh, that was a big break for the Mariners that the Mets were maybe the, well, most likely the only team out there that were interested in taking on a lot of that contract and the player, uh, since their general manager used to manage him. Um, obviously this offseason won't be as impactful not just because Jerry DePoto says it won't be, but just because it doesn't make sense. You've added now um, a bevy of premium young talent. And there were so many great signs in player development over this last calendar year in how those players were progressing. And, um, and, and it's pretty easy to see many of them being worthwhile major leaguers and making an impact for the Mariners. Uh, so you don't want to just go, you know, rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic is, is, is a cliche that a lot of people like to use when it comes to the Mariners or any losing organization, but you don't want to go cashing in some of those chips too soon. You want to see what you have in them. And so Jerry says, we're going to let the kids play. And I believe him, um, for the most part, he's always looking for opportunity. He's always looking for ways to get better. In that way, I think they're very similar to John Schneider and Pete Carroll, the Seahawks, no matter how good you think uh, the roster may be at any given point or how good any position group may be at any given point. They will always explore opportunities to get better, as evidenced by the Josh Gordon acquisition this week um, when we thought, you know, wide receiver group looked pretty set and there were some young guys there that haven't even gotten a shot to play yet. So, um, Jerry DePoto is going to do the same thing. And if opportunities present themselves, he will listen. But there's also some things he's going to look for. And there will be some trades. We know they're not going to spend big in the free agent market this year. 
just because it doesn't make sense to. Um, but trades do make sense. If you can find other organizations that have needs, that match up with your strengths, and maybe they have something to offer you that can help bolster a weakness, those deals could be made. And I could see sort of mid-level trades um, involving, and I've talked about this before, Omar, Omar Narvaez uh, with Tom Murphy taking such a step forward last year and also being better defensively. Domingo Santana, if his elbow is sound. Malik Smith, if there's a team out there who thinks he might be primed for a bounce-back year. Um, and certainly, I think one thing that we all know that DePoto's going to be working the phones for is to try and find a taker for D Gordon to, to really... Um, shed some payroll, but also open up those uh, those opportunities to play second base on a reg- regular basis for Shed Long. But if there is one potentially big-ish trade that could happen, obviously, it's Mitch Haniger. He could still be dealt, and this is a this is a polarizing idea among Mariner fans um, and media. And I think the reason it's polarizing is because he's coming off a questionable year. And there are some unknowns now about Mitch Haniger. There are, there are more questions today about Mitch Haniger than there, than there were a year ago at this time. Um, after these moves started happening last November, the big question was, would they be willing to trade Haniger? He was coming off a six-win season, an all-star season. And not just an all-star season. When I say all-star season. Daniel Vogelbach or Vogelback was an all-star in 2019. But did he have an all-star season? There's a difference. He was selected to the all-star team because every team has to have one representative. He was the best representative at the time at a position where there uh there was a spot on the roster that that they could fill. Mitch Haniger had a six-war season in 2018 to go along with his all-star selection. So, judging strictly by wins above replacement, he also he, he had an all-star season, if that makes sense. So the question was, do you trade him or not? He was 27 at the time, going on 28, coming off his best year, super cheap, still a year away from arbitration. Um was never going to have as much value on his side as he did at that time. And we now know that Atlanta engaged the Mariners in some talks, and DePoto, rightly so, asked for some of their premier pitching prospects, and the Braves weren't willing to part with any of them. And so uh, they hung on to Hanniger. And they say, outwardly, that he's a guy that they want to build around. And Jason and I talked a lot about this on his podcast, about all the things that Haniger does bring to the table and all the reasons that it would make sense to keep him around. The analogy that we both agreed on was Ryan Zimmerman of the Nationals. You need to have those guys that are there throughout the entire process and that saw some of the some of the downtimes and um, that are a little bit older and, and can help groom some of the young guys but are also still um, in their prime. But then he went out and he got hurt last year. Um, Two significant injuries, actually, that robbed him of about 100 games. He only played about 60 games. He hit 218, I think, off the top of my head. Um, uh, There was still some power, but he just wasn't uh, 
putting the barrel on the ball as consistently. Um, he was getting underneath some fastballs. Um, and, and he talked, when it appeared he was going to come back from the first injury, he, he talked about how there were some mechanical things that he found that he was working on and he was anxious to get out and see uh, if he could correct those. He never got the chance because then the back injury um, crept up and, and they decided to shut him down. So now we're a year later. He's going to be a little more expensive because he's eligible for arbitration for the first time. And he's likely not worth as much on the trade market as he was a year ago. But the Mariners organization is also in a different place a year later. And the organizational roster is in a different place. And in particular, it's pretty easy to make the case that outfield is the strongest position group in the entire organization. When you look at every level, when you look at the major league level and the depth there and and the young depth and guys we haven't even seen really what they can do yet, and Braden Bishop and Jake Fraley and Kyle Lewis, who got a taste of the majors at the end of the year, hit six home runs. You don't know if they're going to trade Malik Smith. He may be back in that mix again. And then you've got your two top prospects in the organization, or two of your top three anyway, and Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez, uh, you know, speeding through the organization like a hit record with an eye on number one with a bullet. And they're on the way. So you can make the argument that if you can get fair value for Mitch Hanniger, if you can get something to address another area of need, and you find a team that's that's worth giving up some value, then then he could still be dealt. As I said on Jason's show, I could see it going either way. And honestly, I don't know where I stand. I'm I may straddle right down the middle on this one. I may be sitting right on the fence. I like the player, and I would love to see him be around for when we do win. But if he can help us get something in return, in in particular, if he can help us get starting pitching, I'd be open to the idea of a trade. So, Jason put it this way. He said, if you could find the Mitch Hanniger of pitching somewhere out there, wouldn't it make sense to trade him? And that got me thinking. And so, I spent some time doing some research. And... I kind of tried to take in as many factors as I can. Let's look at Mitch Hanniger in a nutshell. 28, he'll be 29 by the time the season starts. He has technically has two years of service time. He's played parts of four seasons in the majors, but but he has 2.1 years of service time in the major leagues. He has the one all-star nod. He has racked up almost 11 wins above replacement in his career, 10.7, the high of 6.1 in 2018. He's arbitration eligible, as I said, for the first time this year, so he's going to get a pay raise. He will be a free agent after the 2022 season. So what I tried to do as best I could is sift through other youngish starting pitching prospects, not prospects, major leaguers, that only had between two and three years of service time and sat around the same area when it came to war. 
I quickly found out that those parameters were not going to work because here's what you come up with. Luis Severino, the Yankees, two years service time, 12 career war. He's not available, not going to be anytime soon. Noah Syndergaard of the Mets, three years of service time, 17 wins above replacement. See how hard it was to find a match already? I had to bump up the service time and and go a little go a little deeper on the war. Uh, John Gray, Colorado, who's been talked about quite a bit as as a potential target. Um, three years service time, but only five career wins above replacement, and and he's deep into arbitration now. Um, I think he's only a year away from free agency. So you would be getting him and really hoping you find lightning in a bottle and that he turns into a one or a two type to make sense, uh, signing him long-term and extending him or flipping him. Um, Lance McCullers Jr. of the Astros is another one that came up at three years service time and eight war, but he's coming off an injury and you're not going to do that deal. You're not going to deal Mitch Haniger to the team you're trying to catch. The entire reason that you undertook this rebuild process to try and catch the Astros organization. So you're not going to do that. And then a couple of interesting Reds names popped up. Um, another name, actually, that I didn't look that deep into, but it's been it's been brought up before. I know the guys at Soto Mojo love uh, Steve Clevenger of the Indians. I, j- I just don't see him being available unless... Now, I, I was going to say just off the top of my head, unless the Indians decide to tear it down a little bit and build it back up. But um, if they're going to do that, they're going to trade um, their more expensive pitching, Carlos Carrasco, and, um, Corey Kluber, and and they probably wouldn't want to take on a 29-year-old outfielder who's about to make more money. So um, a couple of Reds pitchers popped. Kevin Gossman, Jason's mentioned him before, four-year service time, 10-career war, former fourth overall pick by Baltimore, but he kind of bounced around. He didn't live up to expectations in Baltimore. Had a couple injuries. Ended up with Atlanta. Um, I remember when he went to Atlanta, a lot of people thought, well, that's a great situation for him. They could really resurrect him. Didn't work out. Um, they waived him. He was claimed by the Reds last year off waivers, and they moved him to the bullpen. Um, still throws hard. Uh, average fastball is about 93 and a half. Just as a guy who never put it all together, but still looks like he has a solid arm, here's the problem. He's already making almost $10 million. He's a free agent after next year. And there's questions about whether he can be a starter again. And that led me to another name, Tyler Maley, also with the Reds. And this is really interesting. And he's a guy, he's a name that I've heard before. I'm not going to claim that I dug through all this research and, and aha, pulled this kid out. Um, I've heard his name before and honestly wasn't that familiar with him. 25 years old, arbitration eligible next year, free agent after the 2023 season. He's started 48 games over the last two years. 87 walks and 239 strikeouts in 242 innings. In 2018, he went 3-12 and with a 5-1-4 ERA. A 4.66 FIP. Um, what's interesting about him, he doesn't have overpowering stuff. He doesn't profile. He's not a guy that you're going to trade for hoping he becomes an ace. But his, his walk percentage and his strike 
his K percentage has improved each year. And last year, he only walked 6% of the batters he faced, and he struck out 23 of them. It's pretty good, even without overpowering stuff. Really intriguing pitching candidate. And someone that makes sense in a trade built around Mitch Haniger. Now the question is, why would the Reds want to trade him? And this is the question, really, that's at the core of this whole thing. The reason it's really unrealistic to think that you could trade Mitch Haniger straight up, certainly, for a young pitching starting pitching candidate who profiles in a similar way as he does, is pitching's more valuable. I think the term that Jason used uh, in reference to outfielders was dime a dozen. They're just easier to find through any means of acquisition that you can think of. They're always you can find guys to contribute, and sometimes in a big way in the outfield. But here's why the Reds may want to consider trading Maley. They are known to, and have been saying for over a year, to want to add a controllable outfielder. Someone who has a couple years of club control left, who's not overly expensive, but who can really impact their middle of their lineup. And they have depth in their rotation. They have Luis Castillo, Anthony DiSclefani. They added Trevor Bauer last year. It's a chance they can add Gossman back to the mix if they think he can start. They just hired Kyle Boddy as their new pitching coordinator. Um, someone that's been on baseball things that Jason's very familiar with that runs driveline in Kent. Really interesting hire there by the Reds. And he's a guy that, that in a very similar fashion to the Mariners organization, sees things sometimes in guys where he can improve a pitch, add a pitch, take a pitch away, change the pitch mix, and get more out of him. He may see something still in Kevin Gossman. Um, Their top pitching prospects are mostly in the lower minors. Their number one prospect is Hunter Green, but he's coming off an injury, so he's going to be a ways away. But they've got a really solid top three. Uh, And top four. (laughs) I didn't write it down, um, but I just remember they have Sonny Gray, who was an outstanding bounce-back candidate who they got from the Yankees, uh, hoping he could get back to his old self, what we saw in Oakland, and he certainly did that and more. So really, they have their four deep. So if there's if they see something in Hanniger that fits the profile they're looking for, that they've stated openly they're looking for, maybe Maley is available. You may have to add more to it. You may have to throw in, um, you know, one of those types of trades where we trade Hanniger to the Reds, but we add one of our younger starting pitching candidates. Uh, They took three in the first two rounds of the draft last year. You're not going to trade George Kirby at this point, but perhaps Brandon Williamson or Isaiah Campbell or someone like that. There are guys in the lower levels of the Mariners' system, intriguing young starting pitching candidates, that you could add because you're giving up an arm. Well, hey, you're going to get Hanniger now. You're going to get the best years of his career and potentially get a long-term piece. You could extend him if you'd like. Um, But we're also going to help mitigate the the cost of, of trading a more valuable piece because of the position he plays by giving you a guy that in a couple of years may 
become Tyler Maley. And then there would probably be more involved in the trade as well, something more coming back the Mariners' way as well, maybe a bullpen arm. Um, so it's intriguing. It's interesting. I think if something like that came along, you'd have to do it. You'd have to do it. Uh, we have talked at length about starting pitching and how important it is, and it's a big part of the conversation with Jason Churchill that I had. Um, so I don't want to be um, too redundant here because I really want you all to go listen to that episode and give baseball things a listen. Um, but just to wrap it up, I could see it going either way. Um, be coming off the down year, coming off the injury, we still really don't know where he's at right now physically. We don't know how the back is, how significant of an injury that was. But if you get an offer that makes sense, um, you may have to think about trading Mitch Haniger, and it wouldn't surprise me. And with everything that I just talked about, it wouldn't even surprise me ultimately if he's traded in a deal that doesn't bring back pitching, but just brings back value at another position. So it'll be something to keep an eye on, um, certainly. Uh, there's a little bit of a football game happening Monday. Um, <laughs> Seahawks 49ers, a once intense rivalry that kind of went dormant uh, in 15, 16, 17, 18. Uh, Seahawks won 10 in a row uh, at one point, or 8 in a row during that stretch, and then the Niners, no, it was 10 in a row. I think if you go back to the uh, 2014 NFC Championship game, that started a run of 10 straight wins by the Seahawks, and then uh, the Niners won the last one down there last year in overtime to snap that streak. Uh, but this is a big one, and ESPN really scored putting this thing on Monday Night Football. Unfortunately, we have to listen to those announcers. Um but 49ers committed 8-0. The Seahawks are 7-2. and And it's hard being a Seahawks fan and, and being a rival of the 49er organization. It's hard to admit that they're good. And the first couple of games, didn't want to. Didn't want to admit that Garoppolo was a good quarterback. Didn't want to admit that the Niners had made that much improvement that quickly. You thought coming off a 6-10 off a and 10 year, having the second pick in the draft, that they would show improvement this year, but I was thinking they'd be an eight and eight, nine and seven team, and then we'd have to deal with them in 2020. Well, they've already got to eight wins, and I doubt they're going to lose the next eight. They're they're pretty good. They sure have the look of a good team. They're balanced. They're good on offense, on defense, on special teams. They've got speed. They're deep. But I will qualify that all by saying this. If there's a silver lining, if you're looking at Monday's game thinking that it's unwinnable, that this is a tough task, that the Niners have surpassed us, that they're they're the Rams of two years ago. They haven't beaten anyone great yet. They have one win over a winning team, the Rams. And another win over a team that's 500. So six of their eight wins are against losing teams. Now, you could make a similar argument about the Seahawks' seven wins. The Seahawks' only losses are to the Ravens and Saints, arguably the best teams in each conference right now since Baltimore beat New England last week. Saints are the best team in the NFC. Ravens are the best team in the AFC. Those are the two losses. Yes, they're both at home, and neither of them were particularly close. Well, they were, but they weren't games that really felt like we had a chance to win. 
The 49ers play both those teams, and they've yet to play them yet. They're coming up on their schedule. Six of their last eight games are against winning teams, including the two against the Seahawks. So we're going to find out. 49ers are getting healthier for this game. They get Joe Staley back and Mike McGlinchey, so their two bookend offensive tackles are both back. Kyle Juszczyk, their outstanding fullback, may be back for Monday's game as well. But they suffered some losses in the win over Arizona uh, last Thursday night. Quan Alexander, um, their outstanding middle linebacker that they got in free agency, tore a pectoral muscle. He was uh, having a good season and bouncing back from the ACL um, the year before in Tampa. He's out for the rest of the year. George Kittle didn't practice yesterday. Uh, No report on today yet. They say because it's Monday night, he says he's hopeful he can play and that he's glad he has that one extra game. Um, but he has a knee and a foot injury that he's dealing with. And even though he finished out that game against Arizona after he got hurt, every time he went down, it looked like he needed help getting up. And even if he does see the field, he's not going to be George Kittle. Uh, So that could work in the Seahawks' favor because he's certainly a dynamic talent. Um, They did add um, uh, Emmanuel. Uh, I'm zoning out on his first name now. This is what I get for not writing things down. But they added Emmanuel from uh, for the Denver Denver Broncos right at the trade deadline, and he looks like a really great fit. Um, they are fourth in the NFL in sacks. They're number one. They overtook New England after last week's game. They're number one in the NFL in yards allowed per game. They're second in the league in rushing offense, and they do it with four backs when Juszczyk is back. But uh, Breida and Mostert and Tevin Coleman's back. He's 100%. He looks great. Uh, I think Kyle Shanahan's the best play caller in the NFL. So it would seem to be a daunting task. But we've seen this from the Seahawks before. And this is just what I want to remind you. And maybe I want to remind myself. Because it's games like these and times like these that sometimes I have to remember that football is fun. And it's supposed to be fun. And being 7-2 and two is a good thing no matter how you get there. It's taken some adjustment on our part as fans to get used to this style of Pete Carroll Seahawks team. It's different. They're winning, but they're winning different. We're used to lockdown defense and offense just having to do enough. Completely flipped around this year. Offense at times can't seem to stop anybody, despite the fact there's talent on that field. There's a lot of talent. Jadevian Clowney hasn't really put a lot of stats on the stat line, but he's the most double-teamed player in the NFL. He has one of the highest pass rush win rates in the NFL despite that. You can tell the impact he's making on the field. Bobby Wagner and K.J. Wright are both in the top four in the NFL in tackles. Michael Kendricks is doing some cool things. Shaq Griffin looks like the guy we thought he was going to be now as a rookie. Looks like 2018 was an anomaly. He's playing at a Pro Bowl level. Quandre Diggs, uh, the outstanding safety, uh, acquired in trade a couple weeks ago from the Detroit Lions, may play his first game on Sunday. So there's talent there. It's hard to figure out why the defense isn't gelling. Other than eh, that defensive line just isn't winning any battles. But why is that? Carroll's always been able to generate a pass rush, um, even without elite talent up front. But they can score with anybody. And Russell Wilson right now is the best quarterback in the NFL. And that's not just me saying it. Um, one of the lead analysts from Pro, Pro Football Focus was on NFL This Morning. This Morning. Or Good Morning Football, they call it. On the NFL Network. Uh, 
And he flat out said, he said, by all their metrics, Russell Wilson's the best quarterback in the NFL. So we've had to get used to them winning in a different way. But this is their wheelhouse, man. We've seen this from the Seahawks before. As frustrating as it is to see them play down to lesser competition, and as frustrating it is as it is to see that defense at times get shredded, they rise to the occasion in these situations. The record in primetime games against Pete Carroll is 26-5-1. The next five games are against winning teams, and the next four of those are primetime. Monday Night Football against San Francisco, then they have a bye week to get healthy. Then it's the Eagles on Sunday Night Football, the Vikings on Monday Night Football, the Rams on Sunday Night Football. This is their wheelhouse. So two things... Monday's game will tell us about the Hawks, in my view. And they both pertain to our head coach, Pete Carroll. Number one, will he continue to stay committed to having the offense be more open? This has been a huge key the last couple of weeks. Those slow starts on offense, those conservative starts on offense, I think something clicked in Pittsburgh. But for, for all those fans that were worried this year after what happened in the wildcard game against Dallas last year, that he was going to come out and just be super conservative this year and run on first and second down and throw on third down, put it all on Russell Wilson's shoulders. The last two games are any indication? That's changed big time. And the Pittsburgh game too. But the last two in particular, they came out throwing the football against Atlanta when they really didn't have to. Atlanta's defense not good against the run. They came out throwing the football. And then last week, facing the number one rushing defense in the NFL in Tampa Bay, the 31st-ranked passing offense, I even said on this show, I was worried about him coming out and trying to prove a point. Proving they can run the football. Nope, came out open. And they're doing some really cool things with that offense too. And I think this is going to be a subject for the bye week um, on this show. But you don't hear a lot of criticism of Brian Schottenheimer anymore, do you? He was a punching bag when he was hired and then even into last year. He's doing some really cool stuff. And some of the drives, uh, the play calling is masterful. And in particular, I think one thing that's going to have to, we're going to have to see again this week, we saw it last week against Tampa, is he's doing some controlled, if you've noticed, some controlled rollouts, especially off play action pass, where it's an RPO type situation or an RPO look anyway, even if it's predetermined. And Russell with a play-action fake, and then we'll roll a little bit, giving his offensive line a little help. And he's so good now at moving in the pocket. He's completely ditched the 180-degree reverse pivot bailout move that used to get him into trouble out of the pocket. He took what was a weakness two years ago that I used to scream about and did early on in this podcast after the Los Angeles Charger game last year. He did it a couple times. And I thought he had I thought he had gotten over that. And I'm pretty sure it's the last time we've seen it. He took what was a major weakness. I used to scream, step up in the pocket, step up in the pocket, climb the damn pocket. And now he's become elite at that. You gotta give Shoddy credit for that. Carol talked about it in his press conference yesterday. They've really clicked. Wilson listens to Schottenheimer. Schottenheimer keeps him accountable, keeps him honest. 
He's gotten better mechanically, and that's one of the areas he's gotten better in. Pro Football Focus has him at number one in the league against pressure. And so if you're worried about our offensive line versus their defensive line this week, just think about that. you got the best quarterback in the league operating the number two overall offense in the league. Wrap your head around that. Uh, and he's doing so in a way that suggests continued success. The second thing that Monday's going to tell us is can he get this defense to just be serviceable? It almost, I liken it to uh, my Cougs. They're almost winning in a way that I'm used to WSU winning for the last 25 years. You got to score a bunch of teams and then just hope to get off the field once in a while. Hope to force a couple of punts, give up yards, stand firm in the red zone a couple of times, turn touchdowns into field goals and give your offense a chance to outscore the other team. They have to win differently, and there are signs that Carroll is accepting that and understanding that and game planning accordingly. It's a huge game. Uh, Loss would put the Seahawks three full games back with the tiebreaker. Um, Likely changes their focus after that to the wild card. Makes winning the division a lot tougher. Although, I say that, and that's practical, the Niners would be 9-0. and The Seahawks would drop to 7-3 and with a loss to them already. But again, then six of the next seven games for the 49ers would be against winning teams, including the Saints and the Ravens and the Seahawks again, last game of the year at CenturyLink Field in Seattle. So if they can win on Monday, man, it's going to make for a great stretch run. And uh, how much fun would that be if it came down to the very last game of the year for the NFC West title? Uh, I've got some listener questions this week before we go, and I'm just going to read these uh, as they came to me and without doing any research, uh, as off the cuff as I can. The first one's from Mike Doherty on Twitter at uh, Mike Doe, D-O-H, 244-25884. So does that mean, Mike, that there's over 2.4 million other Mike Does on Twitter and you had to add that number? Uh, He's a good follower, and uh, he likes to interact, and he loves talking Seahawks. Uh, He says, besides Quentin Jefferson coming back, what can be done to get the Seahawks pass rush producing better? See, there we go. More more (laughs) questions about the pass rush already. Um, And Quentin Jefferson coming back from injury this week should help. I think think it can't be understated, uh, the impact that he's had, how good he played in the first few weeks, and then since he's been out, I think it was an oblique injury or a core injury. if he's at full strength and 100%, his versatility being able to play inside and outside, um, I don't think we've had a chance yet to see Jefferson, Reed, Clowney, and Ansa all playing at the same time with Puna Ford mixing there as well. So um, it's certainly going to help. It's certainly going to help. I still feel like, for whatever reason, and I don't understand why, I watch other teams in the league and guys just win off the snap. I was watching the Thursday night game last night. Max Crosby, who I wanted the Seahawks to draft so badly, and I tried to put him in every mock draft that I did last year, but he was he was rated as a fourth or fifth round pick, and Mayock was smart enough to take him in the third, and he's been unblockable at times. And I'm watching him just flat out beat the Chargers' right tackle off the snap and get to Phillip Rivers clean. We haven't seen that from any of our guys all year long. And you're talking about a former All-Pro and Ziggy Ansah. 
and you're talking about an elite talent in Jadevian Clowney, and they're just not beating guys off the line. Um, I know that the Seahawks don't like to twist and stunt a lot because it can sometimes compromise playing your run gaps, um, but maybe that's what it'll take. And um, I, I think they have to get more creative. I really do. Um, and I want to piggyback this with uh, another question I got from Jay Mendoza at Friarhawk12. Um, asked a couple of questions here, but one is very similar to Mike's. What may be our biggest weakness going into the game? Will it be the Niners offensive line versus our defensive attack? Personally, I believe the lack of effective pass rush is also hurting our secondary. We're not getting the quarterback quick enough or pressuring enough to cause bad plays. Do you remember the preseason? Seahawks ran numerous defensive back blitzes. They were blitzing corners and safeties. And it was working. Not a lot of teams blitz in the preseason. Some teams don't game plan. But they were sending guys. I can't recall one time that we've seen that. When the Seahawks blitz... They blitz with Kendricks and Wagner. And they show it. They don't disguise it. They bring them up in the box. Here it comes. As great a reputation as Pete Carroll has as a defensive coach, it baffles me to this point that he hasn't been able to do something within his scheme to disguise blitzes and be creative and do things that other teams aren't expecting. And maybe getting Quandre Diggs in there to go along with Bradley McDougald and to go along with Marquise Blair We'll give them that flexibility where they're guys that can they can cover backs and tight ends, but they can also, they're more physical, they can play in the box, they're comfortable doing that. Maybe a guy like Diggs can can blitz off the edge. Greg Bell, the Tacoma News Tribune this week, uh, tried to press Carroll on why we haven't seen Shaquem Griffin do any of that. Remember, in college, at South Florida, he was used as a situational pass rusher a lot. Got to the quarterback a lot. I think he had double-digit sacks his senior year. They, they tried to play him as a weak-side linebacker last year primarily. Didn't use him in that role. But this training camp, Pete Carroll made a point to tell us they were going to give him a shot to do that. We haven't seen it one time. He was asked about it by Greg Bell, and he kind of brushed him off. Just kind of blew off the whole question. Said he's competing to help us. So a little side, sidebar here, but Shaquem Griffin's a wonderful story. His brother's a wonderful player, but it's a great story. He's a great special teams player. But at this point, if they're not going to find a creative way to use him on the field, then he's a waste of a roster spot. He's a great special teams player. So is Nick Ballore, who we never, ever use at fullback. Hardly. You can't find other guys that play positions on the field that can also contribute on special teams. It just seems odd to me. I mean, we signed Josh Gordon who we don't know if it's going to work out or not and we let Gary Jennings, fourth round draft pick guy with all dripping with talent we let him go because there's no other spot we're in a roster crunch. We got too many receivers. Miami immediately claims him of all the fourth round wide receiver busts the Seahawks have had under Carolyn Schneider Jennings has the best chance to go turn himself into something. 
I'd hate to see that happen knowing that we we had room on the roster to stash him. But guys like Belor and and Shaq's brother are taking up those roster spots. So um, Corbin Smith at Seahawk Maven wrote about it today. Um, wh- what happened to that idea? Why not? Why not bring him out and use him as a situational pass rusher? Um, anyway, um, thanks, Jay Mendoza and Mike Doherty, for those questions. As far as the rest of uh, Jay Mendoza's question, what's our biggest weakness going into the game? It's it's the offensive line against their defensive front, for sure. They're, they've committed... Um, the 49ers have massive high draft capital to that defensive front. And it's really, it's really paying off now. Nick Bosa is everything he was advertised to be and more. D Ford, uh, is playing well. And then they have DeForest Buckner and, and, um, I mean, they even missed, uh, what's the cat's name out of Stanford? Solomon Thomas. They took with a number two or number three pick in the draft a couple years ago. He's been a bust. It doesn't even matter because they committed so many resources to that defensive line. That uh, is something that uh, maybe Pete Carroll and John Schneider should take notice of and try because um, it's just such a key. And I think that's going to be the biggest challenge for the Seahawks, especially with Joey Hunt now nursing uh, an injury. It doesn't sound like he's going to miss the game, but Joey Hunt's six foot three hundred, maybe. Um. We'll see if he's ready to stand up against those guys and if we're able to get any kind of push at all up front in the running game and give Russell enough time to throw. But that's that's the thing that, that worries me. Um, if there is one thing above all else, it's uh, can Russell get time to throw and can Shadi scheme him into opportunities to do so. Uh, I got a question from the Score Zags Score podcast at Score Zags Score. Uh, and it's a Gonzaga-related question, believe it or not. Should the Mariners pursue free agent left-handed pitcher Tyler Olson, former Mariner, Gonzaga grad, old teammate of Marco Gonzalez, and got released by the Indians last week? I remember Tyler Olson quite well. Um, drafted by the seventh round, the Mariners in 2013. In 2015, he made the team out of spring training. I don't even think he had pitched at AAA the year before. But he made the team out of the spring. He only threw 13 innings, and then he was traded to the Dodgers for cash. Um. Bounced around a little bit, spent some time with the Yankees, and then he found a home in Cleveland over the last three years. 78 innings, 86 strikeouts, 34 walks, a 3.57 FIP. Here's the thing, though. He's 30 years old now, and I don't think he makes sense. I love the idea of it, but how many young, cheap bullpen arms are at the disposal right now of the Mariners? Um... I think they're open to adding veterans who could provide value and be candidates to flip, a la Hunter Strickland last year. Um, but they... Yeah. Here's the thing. I'm trying to find a reason to say yes, but there isn't one. He's 30 years old and he's basically a lefty specialist. The Mariners don't need that because they're not a contender at this point. If he was a guy that projected to be more that they thought they could bring in and, and and turn into an eighth inning guy and maybe flip at the deadline for some value, then maybe. But I think Tyler Olsen makes sense as a as a non-roster invitee, uh, minor league signing or minor league contract non-roster uh, with an invite to spring training for a contending club that's looking for a left-hander out of the pen that can get lefties out. Um, I don't know if we're going to see the uh, the minimum instituted this year, 
where you have to face a minimum number of batters if you come to the game, where MLB is basically trying to eliminate the specialist position. Um, that would certainly work against Tyler Olson, but um, love the story, love the idea of it. I bet Marco is campaigning for it, but I don't um, see a fit with the Mariners at this time. I could be wrong, but I don't see it. Uh, and then Will Ford, uh, the real 40, WD40, not the number, F-O-R-D-Y 360 on Twitter. Uh, good follower of mine. Uh, love his takes. He's a very passionate fan. Uh, kind of a, threw a trivia question at me, I guess. Who was the last Seahawks rookie to play 100% of snaps on defense prior to Marquise Blair? And so I'm assuming he means in a game because Marquise Blair missed the first few games of this season. And I did not look this up. I'm not going to look it up to verify it. Uh, you're going to have to let me know on Twitter, Will, if I get this right, I'm going to say Shaquille Griffin. Um, that's what makes sense to me is that as a rookie, uh, he sees that starting job opposite Richard Sherman. And um, I'm going to say he was the last rookie to play 100% of snaps on defense in a game. So let me know on Twitter if I got that right. Uh, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. I'll put the word out every week. Um should be back into a schedule now that uh, the move is essentially complete where I'll be recording usually on Thursdays. Uh, so on Wednesdays and Thursday mornings, I'll put out the call for questions. Love getting that stuff. Uh, it's fun to interact with you guys. Um, next week during the bye uh, for the Seahawks, we're going to hand out some mid-season grades, even though it'll be 10 games in. Um, and I'm going to go back and break down the draft class and rookie contributions. Um, kind of set the stage for the stretch run and find out what's going on with this rookie class, which I thought when he was drafted was really talented. Um, try to ask the question of uh, maybe why some of these guys aren't getting a little more run, but hand out some grades on it uh, on the team as a whole. And then look at that draft class for sure. And then I'm also working on a Mariners off season plan. That'll probably be another week or two kind of having some fun with some mock trade ideas, playing around with some uh, trade tools online and, and um, some bargain free agent signings and playing around with the salary cap and, and uh, seeing if I can put together my version of the Mariners offseason plan. And I hope to have that done. If not next week, the week after. Please subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it on. Uh, check out that latest episode of me on uh, Baseball Things with Jason Churchill. It is free. Um, follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Uh, until then, I appreciate the listen. Uh, did some record numbers this last week. Things are growing in the right direction. It's a lot of fun. And I enjoy doing this. And, uh, and I'm just really grateful that you guys uh, take the time out of your day to listen to me. So um, thanks for listening to the Dan Cave. We'll see you next week. And until then, big weekend for the Seahawks. Go Seahawks. Go Mariners. And go Cougs.